Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. Welcome, I'm your host Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. I realize it has been a little while since the last episode, and I appreciate your patience. I typically record outdoors in order to capture the calls of birds in the background. Unfortunately for this episode, the background soundtrack is predominantly that of a large number of cicadas. I try my best to bring you the highest audio quality I can each episode, but during editing, when I reduced the sounds of the cicadas, there was a negative impact on the voices of myself and my guest. I apologize for the sound quality and hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. This is part one of a two-part special on prey and predators. This episode will focus on prey, and my guest is Jeff Babson. You might remember him from episode seven with the Montezuma quail and episode 16 with the wild turkey. If you're not familiar with Jeff, he is an all-around naturalist who currently works for the Pima County Department of Natural Resources, Parks, and Recreation as the county's wildlife viewing program specialist. He also runs his own eco-tour and environmental education company called Sky Island Tours. Today we will talk a little bit about avian prey, the impact of summer heat in the southwest, and many a raptor's prey item of choice, the morning dove. It's good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. With the weather warming up, we're seeing highs well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Have you been able to make it out to bird recently? Yes, I have, actually. Um, but not in Arizona. I just got <laughs> back from a week in Ireland. Oh. And it was very nice to have the highest temperature while we were there was 70 degrees. <laughs> and also have the chance to look out and see Atlantic puffins and black-legged kittiwakes and razor bills and all these beautiful seabirds in a beautiful setting. So it was nice to be there and also see a bunch of of other birds as well. But locally, I've been out a little bit. It's kind of the time of year when the start of the monsoon season, when the natural world is kind of picking up activity again after the heat, the biggest heat of the summer is over. So it's a very interesting and exciting time to be here. Yeah. So today you're going to share with us a little about avian prey. We'll begin with something that doesn't quite fit the textbook definition of prey. Uh, rather, it is simply food for birds, and that is plant life and their seeds. What are some plants that thrive here in the southwest during the summer that birds turn to for food? Well, with the onset of the warmer temperatures in the spring, we see a lot of growth. Um, then we see another burst of growth with the start of the monsoon season, usually in, in mid to late June or early July. And this is the time of year when we see a really large increase in the growth of things like native grasses, um, native wildflowers, like different members of the sunflower family, things of that nature. And those plants tend to have a fairly short growing period uh, where they'll sprout and germinate, grow fast, flower, and go to seed fairly quickly. Mm. And the seeds are really important for things like lesser goldfinches, for example, um, some other seed eaters with, with rel relatively small, delicate bills will feed heavily on the seeds of those plants. So those are two that, two groups of plants that readily come to mind that really seem to become a obvious part of the landscape at this time of year. You talk about native grasses and the seeds they have. If I see smaller songbirds in a field feeding on the ground, is that likely what they're going after? 
It depends on the birds, actually. So, yes, a lot of them. If you have ground, uh, lesser goldfinches, house finches, um, some of the sparrows, black-throated sparrow, for example, and they're on the ground, yeah, they're foraging for seeds. If you okay. see something else on the ground, it could be something foraging for insects instead because I know we're going to talk about insects coming up, but just like with several types of plants, insect abundance really spikes at this time of year as well. Sure. So the best way to kind of gauge what they're feeding on is to sort of look at the bill. If it's like a triangular, fairly large bill used for seed crushing, then they're probably feeding on the seeds. Hmm. However, if it's more like a narrow pair of forceps that they're picking, sort of delicately picking small insects up off the ground, then you're oh. probably looking at an insect eater. Okay. One more question about the seeds. Sometimes I'll see birds uh, hopping around on the ground looking at things to eat, and it seems like they'll tilt their head to look at the ground. And I always wonder, how do they know that they're not picking up a rock when they go down to pick up a seed? That is a very good question. Um, <laughs> they, you, you will see, I mean, American robins are famous for that. They kind of tilt their head to the side. And some of that, if they're, now the American robin's not feeding on seeds. Mm. They're apparently listening for the sounds that are made by invertebrates. It could be insects on the grass or on the ground. It could be worms underneath the ground, but mm. they're, t they're turning, they're turning their head to the side for apparently from what we can gather to improve their hearing of what they're, of what could be a potential prey item. Oh. Um, if you're a lesser goldfinch and you turn your head to the side, you're, you may be looking for a prey item, but you may also be trying to get a different view of what could be a seed or what could be a small, like a pebble. Yeah. And how they differentiate them is probably based on experience. When they're young birds just out of the nest... Uh, start to feed on seeds, they may make occasional mistakes and pick up a small rock. I kind of look at it this way. If you make your living picking up seeds on the ground, you get pretty good pretty quickly at recognizing what's a seed and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe there could be a few mistakes early on, but after that, they're pretty much unerring in their ability to pick up seeds. The one exception to that, we see this in, in birds like morning doves mm -hmm. that you mentioned earlier. Some of them will actually purposely ingest small rocks mm. and they'll store them in this structure called the gizzard, um, which, you know, birds don't have any teeth. Yeah. Uh, no living bird has any teeth. So their potential challenge is how do they break up bigger prey items or maybe some of the seeds have a hard husk on them? How do they break mm. those up? Well, swallowing these small stones on purpose basically functions like teeth and it's sort of like a grinding oh. mill inside of them so some seed eating birds actually will ingest rocks on purpose for that for that reason hmm. it seems as though things like finches and sparrows don't do that my guess is that they become pretty proficient at recognizing what's edible and what's not okay just based on visual indicators mm -hmm. i was going to ask the question why birds might eat these plants, native grasses, during this time and not year-round? Is the biggest reason just because there's so much more? That's part of it. They're in uh, luxurious growth right now. Plants are going through the reproductive stage of their annual cycle. It is also a fact that many of these plants, once the rains stop, these plants will largely have completed their annual cycle 
by mm. then, and they're and then they'll they'll wither and die. And yeah. so, those food sources may not be available to birds anymore. And so, at that point, they might have to switch to other seeds. Now, having said that, you know, grass seeds, uh, sunflower seeds, those dry seed heads will stay on the plant for a period of time mm. after the plant itself has you know turned brown. Yeah. But at some point, those seeds are all going to be consumed. And at that sure. point, then I guess you could say kind of the good times are over and they have to look for other seeds that may be more, either more persistent from a yearly viewpoint, or maybe there's some seeds that come, become more available later in the year after some of these other seeds have kind of disappeared and they'll switch to feeding on them. The, the challenge for them is to be able to find seeds throughout the year mm -hmm. uh and we're talking i mean obviously if if you live somewhere where you have a bird feeder up most you know most feeding stations have a seed feeder well that is helping them accomplish that task however sure. if you're in a more natural landscape where there are no feeders up and you see common or lesser goldfinches all over the place you see house finches all over the place you see black-throated sparrows well they're doing just fine on their own mm -hmm. finding enough seeds to stay in that area throughout the year and not leave uh because you know migration and even eruptive movements where birds sort of in moss leave their normal range that's usually a result of food shortage more than anything else. And mm. so the fact that these birds remain common throughout the year indicates that there's a lot of food there because not only does each individual bird eat quite a bit, but if you magnify that by the number of individuals of that species, sure. and then you magnify it again by the number of other species that eat seeds in that same habitat, you realize pretty quickly there's a huge seed bank on the ground mm. for these birds to consume. And it's just a matter of most, and, and you can look at birds that feed on seeds as sort of predators in a way, but they're predating upon vegetable matter instead of animal matter. Sure. So there's a lot of food out there for them to prey upon. And they actually, in a way, they kind of help us because, you know, the, every seed that they eat that might be a weed is a, a seed that won't germinate into a plant that someone may have to pull up out of their yard. Uh -huh. So, I mean, it's probably a minor part of the attraction to these birds, but sure. um, every seed that they eat will not germinate into a plant. Hmm. So to some degree, they're curating. Correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you talk about some plants thriving in the summer, having quick periods of growth, and this abundance of seeds, and then they die off. At different seasons, these birds, like you said, have to feed year-round on seeds. When they move to a different plant, uh, I guess, are they even paying attention to the plant? Or are they just paying attention to the seed? Like, are there visual indicators, or is it location-based, where they decide, summer's over, I need to feed over here to eat now? That's a good question also. To me, it's somewhat unclear as to what cues that they're using. Obviously, if they're out there and they've been foraging on one particular seed for a series of weeks and that seed becomes, uh, if not absent altogether, but declines to the point where it takes them more effort and time to look for it yes. than they get and the benefit of eating it, then they're going to switch. And some of the plants that become pretty obvious in the monsoon season are actually sort of like the morning glories, hmm. these viney plants which have beautiful flowers. Now, whether the birds can recognize the flowers and then think, 
okay, at some point in the next week or two, I'll have seeds here or not. I have no idea if they're actually doing that. I think birds are are very intelligent animals uh, as to what's going on. But I don't know if anybody anywhere in the world has looked at uh, that sort of thing. Do they remember where the flowers are and then come back to them at some point in the future? Yeah. Or are they just, you know, kind of on the ground or in the vegetation looking for whatever they can get? Because generally predators look for the easiest, hmm. most available food sure. because they get the most benefit out of it with the least cost to them. So the least yes. effort to find it, the least effort to subdue it. The, the less time they're exposed to their own predators. My guess is if we looked really carefully at a lesser goldfinch or one of the sparrows or one of the other finches or a morning dove or a gambles quail, these seed-eating birds, I think what we would find is that they're probably going from one common seed source to another throughout mm. the year. Now, I suspect there's some learning involved, but like I said, I'm not sure if anybody's looked at that. And another thing to point out is that at this time of year, uh, you might see lesser goldfinches, which are typically seed-eating birds outside the breeding season, feeding on insects. Hmm. And that's because of not only the energetic demands placed on uh, the parents, especially the females, during reproduction, but that's also what they're going to feed their youngsters. So mm-hmm. uh, if you're a seed eater or a, a nectar feeder, like a hummingbird, hummingbirds mm-hmm. are feeding their babies insects. They're not feeding them nectar. Okay. Uh, the goldfinches, the sparrows, they're feeding their youngsters insects instead of seeds because it just is better nutrition to build developing bodies. This might be a silly question, but we've talked a lot about birds eating seeds. Are birds ever eating actual plants? Yes, actually, that's a very good question. So there there are some birds that will feed on actual leaves. Yeah. Goldfinches, lesser goldfinches will occasionally feed on leaves. But okay. generally speaking, birds don't do that. The one exception that comes to mind is there's this really bizarre, wonderful bird that lives in the tropics called the Watsin. Okay. And that's basically a feathered cow. Um, it, it, it feeds on leaves all oh, the time, funny. and it's got a fermentation chamber in its belly, basically what cows do. Wow. Uh, and so they're kind of the exception. So when we talk about things that birds are feeding on that are plant-based, we're talking about seeds. We're talking about fruit. We're talking about nectar and pollen. We're not really talking about the leaves themselves for the most part. Okay. And some birds, too, if they're going after an insect, for example, and the insect's on a leaf, they may occasionally eat the whole leaf in the process of getting an insect, but that's more by accident than by design. So, you know, when birds are feeding on plant materials, like seeds, fruits, and nectar are the big three, not so much the leaves Leaves. themselves. Okay. You mentioned that when some sources of food, like the seeds, are unavailable, even these birds might turn to insects. So let's transition to our next class of prey, insects. Are there certain insects that do better in the summer than other seasons? Here in southern Arizona, from the start of the monsoon season, late June, early July, to its end in August or early September, that is the peak of insect activity. So if you're an insect-eating bird, this is the best of times right now because there's just so much. that Those summer rains 
are sort of our second spring here, and they create this exuberant growth of plants, a huge increase of insects to feed on those plants, which provides a bounty for the birds to feed on them. I think for a lot of insects, this is the prime time uh, of the year. So butterflies, moths, dragonflies, beetles, true flies, those are all really abundant right now. And so if you're an insect eater, this is sort of like going to a buffet line and you can, you have a a choice to pick from. However, it still is probably true where they're feeding on the most available prey at at a given spot at a given time. When you talk about that availability, is this more of now the sparrows where they normally look for seeds, they might look for insects in that same place or in Correct. the same way? Correct. They may also spend a little bit more time up in the plants, like the shrubs and things like that, because that's where a lot of insects are. Mm-hmm. But they're also able to you know, pick up insects that are on the ground and bring them back to their nestlings. And they also feed themselves because for the parent birds during the breeding season, that's a pretty stressful time for them as well. So they yeah. need to, you know, keep their own bodies in good condition and the insects provide the, the nutrition to be able to do that for that. With something like a flycatcher, they're equipped and they've, I guess, have the ability and maybe practice to catch flies, catch some insects. But these other birds, like you mentioned with the triangular bill, songbirds mostly, are they adapting in any other way to prey on insects? You're right. Flycatchers are kind of, they've, their evolutionary path has been towards being able to feed on insects. There are a fair number of flycatchers, like our ash-throated flycatcher, our brown-crested flycatchers here in southern Arizona. When they migrate south in the winter, they're going to feed a lot on fruit during the wintertime. Mm. However, you know, when we see them, they're feeding mostly on insects, and many of our other flycatchers feed on insects throughout the year. Yeah. So they've obviously evolved to be very good at catching them, either in the air or gleaning them from branches. Sparrows, finches, these sort of non-typical insect eaters, they're probably very good at it just mm. because they've been doing it for a long time. Even though their bill is not specifically designed for that, their, their bill is sort of more... Uh, evolved to crush seeds. Sure. But the fact, again, going back to the numbers of the, of individuals and the number of species, that indicates that they're very good at it. Now, yes. they're probably better, actually, of getting insects off the ground than most flycatchers are because most flycatchers are getting their insects in flight. Yes. Vermilion flycatchers, a little bit of a, an exception to that because they will readily go to the ground to pick up insects. Yeah. But something, again, like a Cassin's kingbird or a brown-crested flycatcher, they're getting most of their insects in flight. So the sparrows and finches could actually be better at getting insects off the ground than those birds are, even though their name pretty (laughs) much indicates what they do for a living. So I think, again, I think, you know, these animals are very finely tuned to their environment. And whatever habitat you're native to, whether it's the Sonoran Desert or anywhere else, the native birds are really good at surviving there. So they've sort of figured out what to feed on, when to feed on it, how to catch it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there at at that time of year, at least. A sparrow is probably not very adept at getting a fly out of midair. It does just fine of picking up you know, caterpillars or beetles off of Mm. the ground. And, And like I said, they may actually be better at it than some f- true flycatchers sure. because flycatchers just don't do that for the most part. Yeah. While some insects are readily visible on the ground, on trees, 
I find that most insects are hidden in some way. Mm -hmm. They're not just out in the open. Mm -hmm. They hide themselves. How do birds, I guess, get around that, where when they're walking by a certain patch, they're not going to readily see the insect? How will they, I guess we won't know if they know where to look necessarily, but I guess what what are they doing differently to get to those hidden insects? It seems to me it's their acute vision. Mm -hmm. So I've tried this before, and I encourage all of your listeners to try this. You'll see something like a warbler, like a yellow warbler, Lucy's mm -hmm. warbler here. Warblers are very widespread throughout North America, So, and in other continents, there's other birds that fill the similar niche. You know, there, you watch them, kinglets do this, ruby-crowned kinglets mm -hmm. in the wintertime. They're just, they're going around, you can see them picking caterpillars off of, or pupae, for example, uh, off of branches. Yeah. They get two or three every time they stop. Hmm. And then I go to look, and I can't find a darn one of them. <laughs> so, either A... They're really good at it, or B, I'm really bad at it, or both. Sure. And I think it's both because they're, if, again, if you, if that's how you make your living, you get pretty good at it. Yeah. You know, they're very good at sort of the discontinuity principle, essentially recognizing that. So no matter how well camouflaged something is, if you're attuned to catching that, hmm. then you have probably learned to recognize the very subtle distinctions between that thing you're targeting and the bark or hmm. the leaves around yeah. it. And so you know, warblers, vireos, brown creepers, nuthatches, all of these sorts of birds are very good at doing that. Hmm. And you know, one way you can sort of try this if you want to at home is, you know, look at a little shrub and in full growth. It's all nice and green and see if you can find how many insects on there. There might sure. be some beetles. There might be some flies. You may not see any caterpillars. Mm -hmm. Then take a white sheet and carefully put it around the base of the plant or a, like a shower curtain or even a, a white umbrella yeah. and then whack the plant a couple times with like a broom handle and see yeah. how many insects fall down. Hmm. The number you see is probably going to be way less than the actual number of insects that are present on any plant. And those birds that make their living recognizing that will also show you how many insects are actually present because they're hmm. the ones finding them, whereas we are not particularly good at it. And the only sure. way we, we can kind of get a sense of that is by using those alternative methods of whacking the bushes with sticks. Yeah. It's just this hidden diversity that we don't see because our evolution has not been for that. Sure. So we have to use these other methods just to gauge how many bugs there actually are Correct. on that bush. Correct. And then recognizing that the birds are seeing that. And I guess they've just gotten really good at seeing what doesn't belong. Right. Last episode, we talked about the positive impact of rain on insect populations. Does heat have any sort of impact on insect populations? Yes, but in my view, it's sort of an indirect effect. So here in southern Arizona, by the time we get to late June, early July, we're getting ready for and eagerly awaiting for the start of the monsoon season, which brings the, the rains, which bring the second spring that we talked about earlier. It also typically results in a drop in temperature. That's a great thing. However, before we get to the monsoon, we have that hot, dry period in May and June where it's very hot, very dry. And that, even though it's not the best time of year for a lot of things, we kind of need that time of year to sort of stoke the climatic engine to get the monsoon to to form and then bring the rains that then lead to the abundance of plant growth and of insects. 
what a lot of birds have done, especially in the desert valleys, whether they're permanent residents or summer breeders here, they'll arrive usually, you know, March or April, and they'll, they'll have the ability to produce at least one clutch of young before it starts to get really hot. And those young will be have fledged, they'll be independent, and then uh, we usually get a really hot time where the humidity's in the single digits and the temperatures are in the triple digits for days and days on end. And at that time of year in the desert, a lot of birds take a pause in their reproduction. I'm sure it's partly because it's tough from a, a comfort perspective, but more importantly for the birds, it's also a time of year when there aren't many resources available, whether you're a seed eater, a insect eater, a plant eater, any of that stuff. There's just not many insects available at that time of year. So they take a pause. And then when the monsoons arrive, they kind of, like I said, it's the second spring and it kind of recharges everything and they'll produce additional clutches at that time. Even though it seems odd, you know, if you're in, say, Wisconsin or Maine or somewhere like that, to take a pause in the breeding in the middle of the summer, for birds in the, the desert southwest, it actually is fairly common behavior and it's also uh, a way to survive what is what is really a, a fairly challenging time of the annual cycle for birds. Now, the birds up in the Sky Island ranges around us, they're buffered by elevation, so they tend to be not as affected by the heat as much because it's not as hot up there as it is down in the valleys. But many birds will take a pause in their breeding during the hot, dry part of yeah. the year before the monsoon starts. Morning doves being a notable exception to that. They kind of <laughs> plow their way through regardless. But many of our desert birds will take a pause. Before we move on to our next class of prey, I wanted to touch on something that our listeners have probably heard this whole episode, and that's in the background, these cicadas. Based on the level of noise we're hearing, it seems like there's an abundance of cicadas here. I would imagine there would be birds from all over here to feast on them. Yes, uh, we're hearing the cactus dodgers. That's a really cool name for these cicadas. They tend to, in fact, that's a way when I know it's going to get hot. Hmm. Because when you start to hear them, they emerge right at the beginning of the hot, usually late May, early June. And they have this very loud sort of droning uh, mating call. It's the males mm. trying to attract females, just like birds do. And their large insects would be a very nutritional item. And some birds actually do feed on them. So some of the larger flycatchers like kingbirds, Cassin's mm -hmm. kingbird, Western kingbird, for example, in our area will feed on them. Uh, even things like Gila woodpeckers, uh, greater roadrunners, if they get the chance, will feed on them. They're probably too big of a prey item for something like a Bell's vireo or a Lucy's warbler to feed on. They're, you know, those no. insects are bigger than the bird's heads are. <laughs> so they may sort of pass on them. But uh, there are certainly some birds that will feed on them. And usually... Uh, here we are in early July. I suspect that the cactus dodgers will start to disappear here before too long just because they, you know, they're, they will have the adult stage of an insect's life is basically the reproductive stage. And once they accomplish that, there's not a whole lot of time left for them. So mm. once the monsoon really gets going in July, we usually stop hearing the cactus dodgers because, you know, they've mated, the females have laid eggs and, and so on. But in other habitats, we get later in the year during the monsoons and we get other cicadas that come up and they kind of do the same thing. I noticed you use the term cactus dodger 
while I haven't lived in many other states, uh, especially not on the East Coast, I'm quite sure that they also have cicadas. Mm-hmm. They probably don't go by that same name. Is it because they behave differently? It's not so much they behave differently. The the one, you know, many cicadas are annual, which means mm. they'll appear every year like the cactus dodgers do. Others may take a couple of years. You know, the periodical cicadas have these. Last year, for example, was a really great year for Brood 10, where they, I mean, they're literally everywhere. Mm. Uh, but they take anywhere from 13 to 17 years to, oh, as wow. a larvae to, to be able to do that. So those are very, very synchronized. The other genera of cicadas we have, even though if you looked at one, if you know what a cicada looks like, you'll have no trouble recognizing it as a cicada, Mm -hmm. it might have a very different, uh, like time period from when it is a larva and and how many years it takes to become an adult, that sort of thing. But cicadas are pretty consistent in that regard. They're, they're a pretty easily recognized group. The variation comes in the habitats. Uh, so in, in say, Georgia, just picking a state at random. Sure. If you're in Georgia, you're going to have cicadas too, but they're not going to be the same species that we have here. Sure. Very likely not even the same genus that we have here because the ones that, that are there have evolved to live in the southeast, whereas the ones that are here you know, have evolved to live in the desert southwest. And if you were to switch them, yeah. they probably wouldn't do very well because mm-hmm. it's the habitat, the climate is unsuitable for them. So cicadas are found widespread you know, throughout North America, but it could be different species with differences in the details of their life cycle, but recognize them as a cicada is usually pretty straightforward. As a follow-up question, I guess I was focusing in on the idea of behavior because of the name Cactus Dodger. How did the cicadas here get that moniker? Well, they're living in habitats where, first of all, there's a lot of cactus. Um, I see them more on like Ocotillo, uh, flower stalks of like yuccas and uh, desert spoon and things. I see them more on those sorts of plants than I see them on cactus. So I think that's where that part of the name is. And and the fact that cicadas actually, even though they look uh, sort of clunky when you look at them because they have really robust bodies mm-hmm. and, and their their wings are not huge compared to the size of their body. They're actually quite adept flyers. And so my guess is they're very good at navigating the landscape and dodging the cactus as they fly around to land mm-hmm. on something that may be less spiny or maybe more suitable for them. One thing that they all do share is is they live in arid environments and cacti are conspicuous plants in arid environments. Sure. And so those two things kind of came together, I think, in their name. Okay, that makes sense. The next class of prey we'll cover are reptiles. When I think of reptiles, I think of lizards, snakes. Here in the Southwest, are there any that I might be forgetting? No, here in our area, you know, lizards and snakes are, are the predominant, by far, reptiles that are preyed upon by birds. Occasionally, a turtle, especially a young turtle, will get eaten by a bird. But generally speaking, um, it's snakes and lizards. These reptiles vary quite drastically in size. So I imagine the same implies to the birds that eat them. What is a bird that eats reptiles that we might not expect to? One of the sort of famous or, I guess, infamous if you're a herpetologist, and let's remember the birds are actually reptiles now. So they're kind of feeding on their cousins to some extent. But greater roadrunners are sort of famous for 
feeding on reptiles, they significantly impact lizard populations mm. during the time of the year when lizards are active, which is most of the year here. Yeah. So they feed on lizards, they'll feed on snakes, um, they'll feed on rattlesnakes, they'll feed on gopher snakes. Roadrunners are quite substantial predators, even though they're technically not raptors. They have a very raptorial life cycle or lifestyle, and everything that raptors can do and feed on, pretty much roadrunners can as well. Mm. So they are very adept at catching lizards. They're very adept at catching snakes. In the lizard and snake community, that's the the bird that shall not be named because <laughs> I've watched nests of, of roadrunners and one lizard after another is being brought to the babies and hmm. rammed down their throats. And it's just remarkable how many lizards they're able to catch. catch. But they do a good job on the snakes, too. It seems like when I talk about the variation in size, we think of, you know, small prey, smaller bird, bigger prey, bigger bird. The Roadrunner seems to defy that in not being a substantially large bird, but going after a snake. Snake seems like a very large piece of prey to go after. I, I think you're right, Chris. I think there is a sort of continuum from something like a loggerhead shrike, mm -hmm. uh, which will certainly prey on lizards, probably not so much on snakes, but will definitely feed on lizards. Yeah. Sort of at the other end, you have things like red-tailed hawks and Swainson's hawks, which will, are, are very adept, actually, at catching large snakes. And I've seen uh, red-tails in flight, and they have a three- or four-foot snake in their talons as they're flying off. And so the roadrunner is sort of intermediate in size, but it's it takes a wide range of prey. So the smaller prey items, small snakes, small lizards, they just get swallowed whole. They yeah. go right down the hatch. I've seen photos of... Uh, roadrunners that have either a snake tail or a lizard tail sticking out of their bill because that particular prey item might have been a little bit too big to get all down in one one shot. Yeah. If they get a big enough snake, they'll they'll just sort of tear pieces off and swallow them just as like a, an owl or a hawk or an eagle would do if it got a big prey item. It would just tear pieces off and swallow them um, as as it did so. Because remember, birds don't have any teeth, so they can't chew up, take bites and chew it up and then keep going. They have to, whatever they take off, they have to swallow whole. So sure. when birds do that, you tend up with a pretty mangled carcass after it's all over. But they're, they're yeah. really good at getting all the nutritious parts like the muscle and the organs and stuff. So Probably. they do a, a very good job with that. And there's actually a couple of birds in the world. Um, two that come to mind are the secretary bird, mm -hmm. which is in the African savannas. So think of an eagle with a crest attached to a heron's legs. Huh. That's kind of what they look like. And uh, there's a small little falcon that comes as far close to us as southern Sonora, the laughing falcon. Those are both snake specialists. That's mm. what they feed predominantly on. So there are around the world, there are um, birds that have evolved to feed pretty heavily on certain reptiles. And I think in the Sonoran Desert the, and, and the Southwest as a whole, the, the roadrunner kind of fills that reptile eater niche very well in the desert. Hmm. When we were talking about insects, we talked about the change in population size because of the rain after the heat. Do lizards and snakes experience a similar increase based on weather? They do. It's more of... It's, it's They do, but it's sort of a different way to do it. So what happens with them is that most of, like our rattlesnakes, they give birth to live young. Yeah. Their birthing period is typically during the monsoon season. Okay. 
A lot of the other snakes and lizard eggs will hatch during the monsoon season for the very same reason that birds often have clutches at this time of year because the abundance of insects and mm. and other prey to feed upon. Because mm. if you're a rattlesnake and you feed mostly on uh, on mammals, a lot of rodents are abundant right now. If you're a baby rattlesnake, they feed a lot on lizards, which are also very abundant right now. So there is influx of numbers of lizards and snakes right now, and it's mainly because this is their primary sort of hatching or birthing season. Can you speak a little bit about the intelligence of these reptiles? Maybe give us an idea of the difference in intelligence levels of, say, a lizard and a snake. So I think in general, humans are really poor at judging the intelligence of other <laughs> creatures because we come to it with our own biases. And so we're developing tests based on our mm insight, which may be totally irrelevant to the animals that we're testing. With that being said, the question is, are they intelligent? My answer is they're intelligent enough hmm. because otherwise they wouldn't be here. So, you know, they're, they're, if you're a lizard or a snake and you're obviously living in a landscape that's full of predators, you have some things you can do. Where it fits in with intelligence and cognition and all that stuff is, is kind of gets hazy. So mm -hmm. for a lot, like a rattlesnake, your best defense is not being seen in the first place. Mm -hmm. So camouflage plays a big part. But they also have to know sort of where to rest or where to coil up yeah. so that they are camouflaged. The same is true of lizards. You know, um, a lot of lizards, like the zebra-tailed lizards, very pale kind of gray color. It's the, it's the color of sand. It needs to live in a place where there's a lot of the ground that's that color. Otherwise, it's going to stick out and it's not going to survive. So camouflage is their best defense. Another defense is evasion, which is speed, yeah. running away very quickly. Rattlesnakes, some other snakes are very good at defending themselves. A lot of snakes will try to get away if their camouf camouflage is blown. Sure. But some of them are more likely to stand their ground than others yeah. to take on. And, and they can can give what, what the field guides might describe as a spirited defense of yeah. themselves, which might cause uh, some predators to um, to say, okay, you're not worth it. I'm going to go find something else. Yeah. There is intelligence because... A lot of these things can recognize what type of predator is coming towards them and adjust their behavior accordingly. Hmm. For example, king snakes like to feed on other snakes, right? So if, a, if a, a rattlesnake sees a king snake coming, it might sort of position its body in such a way that makes it really hard for the king snake to swallow it. However, if a hawk's coming, that's not going to be effective. The hawk's going to be able to just reach yeah. down and grab it. So there is some intelligence. I think, like I said, we are very poor and only in the initial stages of gauging the intelligence of other animals. And we have so much to learn as far as that regards. But I always think that there's a lot more going on inside other animals' brains than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's there's certainly intelligence and, you know, can they solve a Rubik's Cube? <laughs> yeah. Probably not, but that's irrelevant to them. Sure. And they can do things that we can't. So I, I think there's uh, a fair amount of intelligence going on, but how we would determine how much is intelligence and, and what even intelligence really is. I mean, I think that there's sort of a 
continuum of definitions even to describe what that term means. Sure. Again, the short answer is they're intelligent enough and yeah. they're able to recognize threats. They're able to adjust their behavior accordingly. To me, that's intelligence. And they're probably a lot more cognitive than we would give them credit for. When you talk about the snakes, about how some choose to stay in camouflage or once the camouflage is blown, they might just slither away. Looking at lizards, one of the behaviors I've noticed, it seemed rather consistent. When you talk about the zebra tails, anytime I encounter one of those, they seem to just run. Yep. They run very quickly. Yep. Uh, but when I encounter the larger lizards that appear, their body seems to be the size of a hot dog. Those <laughs> large lizards. <laughs> that's, that's how I usually refer to them. Right. Uh, because of my lack of knowledge. Right. But those appear to do push-ups Correct. when I encounter them, and they don't retreat. Right. What's going on there? So the hot dog ones, those are the, the desert spiny lizards, and they can okay. be pretty hefty lizards for sure. They can actually scoot pretty quickly, but they're not going to be as fast as a zebra tail. They're sure. just not built for that. Just like, you know, a cheetah is faster than a cow yeah. because they've, they've gone on their own separate trajectories. So... With that being said, the spiny lizards can scoot pretty quickly when they have to. However, they're called spiny lizards because they have these keels on their scales, which end up in a little spine at the tip. Okay. And so that in and of itself might very likely be a defensive thing mm. because to swallow them, it might be a rather unpleasant experience. And sure. that would gain them some protection from predation. Yeah. The zebra-tailed lizard, on the other hand, doesn't have any of that. It has to rely on its speed and its camouflage. So it's sort of evolved in that direction. Yeah. I am sure that spiny lizards are eaten all the time. You know, yes, the, yes. the roadrunners, for example, will pick them Eat off. Them. But I, I would think at some level those spines do uh, provide some level of protection. They're actually also pretty well camouflaged when they're not. Yes, so they are. when you see a lizard doing the push-ups, that's sort of the equivalent of a bird singing. Oh, meaning it's a territory advertisement to a female. It's a warning to other males that mm. this is my territory, and if you come closer, we're going to have a, a, a an altercation. Yes. You know, when they do the push-ups, they're often not doing them to us. Yes. There might be another lizard around that we don't see, that that's the target audience. Um, On the other hand, who knows? They might be so full of testosterone, they see a human walking <laughs> towards them. It's like, oh, yeah, this is my territory. Yeah. And you get around to push-ups. Like I said, they're actually very well camouflaged, and they can scoot pretty quickly. Uh, not as fast as a zebra-tailed, probably not quite as camouflaged as a zebra-tailed. But I think one of the key differences is zebra tails are, are kind of long, skinny lizards that could go down the hatch quite easily. Yes. Uh, spiny lizards are bulkier, spiny Correct. lizards that might be harder to swallow, which yeah. might gain them some protection, which might lead to them being more robust and not as fast. However, it, out here in nature, there's not no strategy that's 100% effective. Yes. There's always somebody circumventing your best defenses. So, yes. I think when you see the different behaviors of different lizards, one of the things you're actually witnessing is their response to potential predators. And when we're out walking around on a landscape, to a lizard, we're a potential predator. Sure. Right. And so we often get a chance to see what they're gonna what they're gonna do. You see different body shapes have evolved for different um reasons. Sure. When you talk about body shape, you mentioned the term camouflage multiple times with the zebra tail. That almost seems counterintuitive because the 
tail is so bright white and black. I wonder how, how does that help it? Because every time it runs off, you know, the tail is sticking straight up. Is that a defense mechanism? It plays into it. So here's what happened. If zebra tail lizards are these pale, sandy lizards, they get some color on their sides during the breeding season. And if you see one, if you're out in your yard or you're on a hike and you see one, they'll curl their tail up. So it's kind of curled over. And the tail is snow white with black bands across. That's where the name comes from. And they'll kind of sort of, in a cocky fashion, wave it back and forth. And basically... It's a message to us or a potential predator that, look, I have seen you. Your chances of catching me aren't very good. Mm. So just move on. Yeah. But if you continue, they'll run off and they'll stop and they'll lay their tail down Mm. and they blend into the landscape. And your last search image of this thing was that bright black and white tail that's now no longer there. So it actually, even though it's, it's a very obvious signal, when they're actually trying to be camouflaged, that you don't see that part because the top of the tail is very different. It's kind of that sandy brown yeah, or sandy yeah. gray color. You don't see that. Whereas when they want to be seen, it's very obvious and they're kind of waving it slowly back and forth. Um, you almost can look and they're sticking their tongue out at you, you know, like <laughs> I've seen you. So even though that looks like a, a counterintuitive yeah. thing, like you mentioned, it actually plays into their defensive strategy because it'll run off 20, 30 feet. It'll stop in the sand, lower its tail, and good luck finding them. And they're really fast. So uh, you might not even know where it stopped because yeah. they're just kind of a blur when they run. So even though it's an obvious thing, it actually does play into their uh, camouflage in a, in, a, in a way. So then it effectively acts as a visual decoy of Correct. sorts. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Our final class of prey will be the kind that is often considered to be cute and furry. I'm not sure if they all fall into a single class, uh, but I'm thinking of field mice, squirrels, rabbits. I know that raptors typically pursue this kind of prey, but outside of them, are there any birds that prey on them? Yeah, again, the roadrunners mm-hmm. will feed on them. The shrikes will occasionally feed on small mice, although really? they tend to feed more on like small lizards and insects, but sure. it's, it's definitely within their diet. Hmm. Owls are major predators, which are, depends on how you define the word raptor, but Correct. they're, they're primary, uh, mammal eaters too. Don't rule out herons. Hmm. Things like great blue herons and great egrets can take things like cotton rats and other rodents that live in the marshes and along the shore of ponds and rivers and lakes. So they're a a type of bird that feeds on mammals that I think a lot of people don't really think about. Potentially in some places, gulls, uh, especially the larger gulls, will feed on on mammals. Hmm. So, you know, while most people think of like the hawks and eagles and owls, there are other birds that will feed on them as well. As we talked about with the insects and the reptiles, I assume that these rodents and rabbits similarly flourish in the monsoon season because of the abundance of food. So when they are flourishing, they are also now abundant for their predator. What methods are these uh, mammals using to evade predators? So you're right. They're the monsoon especially brings out an an influx of new babies that are naive and don't really yet know what to avoid, how to avoid it, uh, that sort of thing. So a lot of the smaller mammals, and again, it's mostly rodents and rabbits that are fed upon by by birds, 
they they have again camouflage is a good like rabbits will often stay hidden in the underbrush when uh, there could be raptors around. A lot of our rodents live in burrows and come out at night, so that's a good way to avoid hawks. Obviously, not a good way to avoid owls, but they will come out at night, and at least some of the predators have gone to sleep at that point. So there is that going on. If you're a rodent or you're a rabbit, like a desert cottontail, you're kind of on the diet for most of the predators in the Sonoran Desert, other mammals, uh, reptiles, birds. And so they have a couple of strategies. Uh, Number one, to try to remain hidden as much as possible, to be very fast. And a lot of like uh, kangaroo rats, which is adorable little rodents, when they're, they're, they kind of hop like rabbits or kangaroos, but yeah. they'll, they'll take a very erratic pattern. Mm-hmm. So it makes it harder for the predators to follow them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not doing a straight line because if you do a straight line, it's easier for predators to get, uh, to get sure. onto you. They're very successful. However, still huge numbers of them are getting taken mm-hmm. by various predators. So their, their other defense is producing large numbers of offspring. Uh, sort of, I call the salmon approach. You know, the, they, they sort of evolutionarily know that many of their offspring aren't going to survive to adulthood. So yeah. the way they compensate for that and keep the species going is to produce large numbers of them, either big litters or very, or, or numerous litters in the course of a breeding season. You know, gambles quail kind of do the same thing. You know, their clutch size is, you know, 10 to 15 or so is pretty typical. The reason for that is, again, that most of those babies, unfortunately, aren't going to survive to adulthood. But, you know, the chances that one of them will is is much higher. It's a it's a fairly common strategy in the animal world to high predation pressure and rodents and rabbits certainly practice the same thing. Now let's move on to our bird segment, where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, Jeff will tell us about the morning dove. While we didn't cover birds as a class of prey, doves are commonly considered to be a prey item. What are some factors that contribute to doves being items of prey? First of all, it's their abundance. You know, most people are, are familiar with mourning doves. They're, they're very common throughout much of North America. And in fact, you know, when birders first set eyes on them on a, on a birding outing, they'll often, oh, it's just a mourning dove. That's a common sort of response to mm. a mourning dove sighting, and that alludes to the fact that they're so common. So that's one of the reasons why they are uh, a heavily preyed upon bird. The other reason is we talked earlier about how some birds take a pause during the, the monsoon season. Mourning doves do not. Mm. They produce large numbers of clutches, and uh, not large clutches, but, you know, they might produce five or six clutches in the course of a year, typically with two eggs apiece. So they can, by by sort of continuing through um, the the hot, dry part of the summer, that allows them to sort of compensate for their small clutch size. It's mostly their abundance. You know, again, many predators take the most available prey, and morning doves certainly fit that bill. Mm. So we've talked about why morning doves are a prey item for others, but what do they eat? So when I say that, I know we typically see in urban environments uh, morning doves feeding on restaurant patios or in a backyard feeder. But out in the quote-unquote wild, what are they eating? Well, they really don't. I mean, if they're, they're not eating French fries out in the wild, but what <laughs> they could be feeding, I mean, they're going to be feeding on seeds. They're, they're, mm-hmm. That's their primary food. Uh, they'll feed on that 
pretty much year-round. They'll also feed on fruit. So out in the Sonoran Desert, they'll feed on cactus fruit, which is really interesting because there's this dominance interaction between white-winged doves and morning doves mm. when the saguaro fruit open. Yeah. The white-winged doves kind of exclude the morning doves from the fruit that are still on the cactus. Yeah. They like those for themselves, and they'll see a morning dove on it, and they'll drive them away. Hmm. Morning doves will still feed on the fruit, but typically after it's it's fallen onto the ground. So it's probably not as nutritious, not as moist at that uh, time of yeah, year. Yeah. But they're still ingesting the seeds and functioning as seed dispersers for the saguaro. So, you know, yeah. the saguaro doesn't care who disperses their seeds as long as they get done. Sure. So mostly seed eaters throughout the year with fruit when it's available. We talked earlier about seed eaters mm-hmm. and songbirds and how they have uh, typically a triangular bill. Mm-hmm. The morning dove's bill doesn't seem to fit that bill correct it's it's definitely not a sparrow bill at all it's kind of long and and relatively thin and probably fairly weak overall that's where the gizzard comes in that's where they they swallow those small stones those stones will help them break up the rough seed husks that Mm. that they're encountering and so they can still get to the nutritious part of the seed They're also feeding on seeds that are relatively thinly husked. The husk just gets broken down in the digestive tract. So either way, they're still able to eat seeds, even though they do so largely without crushing them like a sparrow or a finch would to get to the meat inside. And they can still get that nutrition. Correct. Earlier, you talked about some of their behaviors, how the white-winged doves might drive away the morning doves. One thing I noticed in my own yard is when I've seen that behavior where they might chase each other on foot from a patch of seeds on the ground. But another one that was particularly interesting was a morning dove that was sitting in the tree just on a branch. And I watched it for about 15 minutes. As a dove, any other dove seemed to enter the airspace of my yard, this dove would immediately get off the perch and chase that one away. Then it would return to the perch. And a few minutes later, if another dove entered the airspace, it would chase them away. Are these doves territorial to some degree? Yes. I mean, there's a reason why the dove is the international sign of peace. I mean, they're not real, generally speaking, they're not real aggressive animals. However, if they find a really rich patch of resources, typically food, like around a feeder, for example, um, they will try to monopolize it and keep it for themselves and drive other birds away from it. How you're able to overcome that in places, like some places have a whole bunch of seed feeders out, Mm -hmm. and you don't see that behavior. They might chase each other on the ground a little bit, like a couple of feet, and then they'll go back to feeding again. But that sort of preventing the birds from even landing, that generally doesn't happen in places like the Patton Center for hummingbirds in Patagonia run by the Tucson Audubon Society just because there's so much food available Mm -hmm. that everybody gets as much as they need. And so there's no need to sort of defend it where if you have either one feeder up or one patch of landscape that's particularly rich in food and it's just easier to defend. And so that's when you sort of see that thing. Like I said, it's not unusual to see doves on the ground together and they seem to all have their, you know, individual space like we do. And if a dove has an incursion into it, it'll chase it away a little bit, kind of just a rapid walk. Yeah. Really, not a really <laughs> any aggressiveness. But you see that fairly commonly, but it all kind of depends on 
If there's a rich food source available, it's possible for one bird or a pair to monopolize, then they might try to do it. Right. But generally, you don't see that because living the, the lifestyle that they do and feeding what they feed on, there's not as much of a need to do that because there's yeah. always seeds on the ground. But they, they will do it occasionally if in a particularly rich food source. Okay. You mentioned one or two birds. How are morning doves grouped? Do they group themselves in larger groups? They do. They will often, especially at, at, at night or in the morning, you'll see them in groups because they, they may all roost up in the trees. Hmm. They, they roost in the evening. They typically roost up above the ground, trees and shrubs, which provide okay. some protection from things like bobcats, coyotes, rattlesnakes, things of that nature. Sure. In the landscape, not all trees are created equally. So yeah. you might have several of them roosting together overnight in a very lush tree that provides ideal protection for them. Uh, Likewise, you'll often see them in the desert where they're in flocks because water is not always available and everything needs to drink. So one of the advantages of group living, not only does it decrease the chance you as an individual will get taken by a predator, but also it's a form of communication. So let's just say yesterday you went out and you were foraging and, and you had a hard time finding good water. Well, if you go back to the roost in the evening, then the next, you know, maybe one of your compatriots there uh, did have success. Maybe you'll follow them tomorrow and find a really good spot and say, okay, I need to remember this. So there there are multiple reasons why things live in groups, but those are two of the the more um, frequently cited reasons. It's not uncommon to see a morning dove off by itself either. It's more at night and in the early morning. Once they the sun comes up and they've got their drink to start the day, then they kind of disperse and act more like individuals at that point. Hmm. So far, we've mentioned morning doves and white-winged doves. What distinguishes a morning dove from these other doves, aside from visual traits? White-winged doves tend to be bigger. They tend to be bulkier. They have a a shorter, more squared-off tail. Hmm. Morning doves are slighter build with a long, pointy tail, which gives them even a slighter look to them. Yes. However, they also, they seem to have slightly different dispositions. Like I said, the white-winged doves will try to exclude morning doves from things Mm. like saguaro fruits, whereas Mm. I can't recall ever seeing a morning dove who was already on the saguaro trying to keep a white-winged dove away from it. They seem to differ at some level in their disposition. The morning doves are widespread permanent residents in most of North America, whereas White wings do migrate. Some of them are permanent residents, depending on where they're living. In southern Arizona, you can find them in winter, especially like in agricultural areas. But in Tucson itself, you often don't see all that many in the wintertime. Those birds will go south to Mexico. So there's differences in that behavior as well. There's obviously differences in their vocalizations. The white-winged dove has the famous who cooks for you call and the, and the <laughs> The morning dove sounds different, even though the individual notes are sort of similar in their quality. They're just put together differently. So there's actually a fair number of differences. They are similar enough, though, that they're placed in the same genus together. Okay. Earlier, you mentioned one of the reasons that morning doves are a common prey item is due to how often they reproduce. And you talked about their clutch size of one to two happening five to six times a year. Can you tell us a little bit more about the actual nesting behaviors? Morning doves are often sort of the subject of mockery and jokes because 
you know, their nests are not very substantial structures. You know, they'll put a few sticks together and you can something to lay their eggs and you can sometimes see the eggs underneath the nest when you look up at the nest. And so what looks like shoddy construction actually has two very useful benefits to the doves. Number one, it doesn't look like a nest. Mm-hmm. So if you're a predator and you're, you know, going by a tree with a morning dove nest in it, you may look up and you might, oh, there's just a bunch of sticks up there and keep going. Whereas if you had, you know, something like a thrasher nest, that's very obviously a nest yeah, because it's so big and robust. So there's that uh, benefit. Also, you know, Southern Arizona gets quite windy. Mm-hmm. You know, we have stretches where the wind blows for days on end, you know, 20 miles an hour plus, if that nest gets blown out of the tree, it doesn't take them long to rebuild it. So they don't lose as much time, say, as compared to a curved bill thrasher or a northern cardinal in reconstructing the nest after it's been destroyed. So those are two positive attributes to uh, what looks to us to be a very insubstantial and not very uh, worthy nest. Now, there are times when the eggs will actually fall through the bottom of the nest. That does happen. But the reason why the nests are built the way they are is so they don't look like nests and can be rebuilt Mm. quickly. So there are actually benefits to that. They'll tend to breed pretty much, not, not quite throughout the year, but they'll start in the early spring, have continuous more or less clutches until the fall, typically two young per clutch. One of the things that sort of separates pigeons and doves from other birds is that the adults are able to produce <clears throat> what's called crop milk, mm. which is a highly nutritious sort of semi-solid uh, material that that's actually the lining of the crop that is sloughed off and then fed to the young. And the benefit of that is the young grow very quickly because it's such a highly nutritious hmm. food. So they leave the nest pretty quickly within a few days of them being hatched. They're on the ground and, and away from the nest. But could you clarify the crop? I, I'm not familiar yeah, with so that. So the term. crop is basically part of the digestive tract. It's sort of like in raptors, for example. Not all birds have it, first of all. Hmm. But birds that do, things like a raptor or an owl, they might use it as a food storage device. Okay. And, and that's because they've caught a big meal. They have no idea when their next big meal is coming. So it makes sense for them to eat as much as they can when it's available and then just sort of slowly digest it mm. than to leave it behind. Vultures do the same thing because they don't know when the next meal you yeah. know, meal is. Many seed eaters, not all, but many seed eaters have it as well. And pigeons and doves are one of them. Like if there's a whole bunch of seeds, if you're on the ground, if you're out there actively moving around, you're making yourself visible to predators. So what they'll do is they'll eat as many seeds as they can till they get that crop full. You know, I'm sure they're swallowing a bunch as well. Then they'll fly off to digest them, but also do it in a place where they're less out in the open. Sure. The pigeons and doves sort of take that to a whole nother level by basically using part of their digestive system to feed their young. And it's loaded in proteins, it's loaded in fats, and the benefit is that the babies grow really fast. So they're obviously not using it as a food storage yeah. structure at that time of the year, but that's what he evolved for. And they're the only birds that I know of that have that ability. Hmm. Um, and so that makes them kind of unique in that way. Another way that, that doves and pigeons are kind of unique is they can drink with their head down. If you watch them at a water feature, most birds will scoop it up and tilt their head yeah. back. These guys can drink like like we drink out of a cup you know they mm. can just swallow and then most birds can't do that so 
that's kind of a neat little trick that they do too. Yeah, yeah. Talking about the quality of morning dove nests, in my experience, I've seen some that appear to me to be poorly built, but as you pointed out, there's other benefits. But one of the reasons I considered it poorly built was the next day, I found the two eggs on the ground shattered. When you have a clutch that kind of fails in that way, do these morning doves make another one? Or do they they wait for their normal time? They can do a couple of things. They can either pick a new location and build a new nest, or more typically, they might add a few sticks to it and and use the same spot. They can reuse nests for multiple clutches. And so, you know, that's the downside, right? If, If you build a nest that's sort of... Uh, rather inconsequential, especially on you know the bottom of it. The nest is essentially just a vessel for the eggs. If you build the one with a thin bottom, then it stands to reason that occasionally the eggs will fall through. Sure. Which, from a dove perspective, is is certainly uh, a negative. But they're capable of you know starting another clutch within a few days. Mm. So it's. It's more of a, in their annual reproductive budget, it's more of a speed bump than a tragedy as far as they're concerned. So, I mean, I don't know if they think of it that way, but from an ecological and evolutionary perspective, they can start another clutch fairly quickly, and they will often reuse the same nest, maybe with some modifications to it. Not much, but a little bit. Maybe a few more sticks there on the bottom will be enough. Um, and they will, if they're successful, they tend to use the same nest, maybe even for an entire breeding season. Hmm. Um, where they tend to maybe use another nest is if a nest, maybe a predator did find it, like a, uh, a snake that climbed up, yeah, something yeah. like that. Then at that point, there might be bad juju around the, the nest and they'll build somewhere else, but usually not very far away. Okay. Um, they can sort of compensate for that pretty quickly. Hmm. And based on what we've heard today sounds like despite what we might think of some of these nests it's probably better that we don't get involved with helping to build their nest into something we think is more appropriate correct i mean some people you know will put like a little platform like a little wooden box under you know they'll they'll lift the nest underneath and put the box underneath and then put the nest back down They've been building what we consider to be shoddy nests since they first became morning doves, right? It's not a a recent development. Sure. You know, my take is just to leave it alone. Mm -hmm. Just leave the nest alone. The one thing they also do is because the young get fed this crop milk, which is, again, is highly nutritious, leads to rapid development. Yeah. They will leave the nest quite early, much smaller than the adults. They're largely feathered. They look a little bit different. And they'll be on the ground, and they're sort of almost tame at that point. Might okay. be a word to describe them. You walk up to them, and they just kind of look at you. Yeah. A reaction that a lot of people have to, quote-unquote, save that bird. It's, it's uh. like it's been abandoned by the parents, or it's in serious danger. I need to help it. Well, again, morning doves have been have been doing that forever. Yes. And all you need to do to realize how successful it is is to look at how many morning doves are around. Sure. There's a reason why some birders say they're just a morning dove because they're one of the most common, if not the most common bird in North America. So the strategy, regardless of what we think of it, works very well for them. And so yeah. if you see a young morning dove on the ground, the best advice I would give is to leave it be. It's doing what morning doves are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Are they at risk of predation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that they are. 
But from the time they're an egg until they t die of a natural death of old age, mourning doves are at risk of predation every moment. Sure. So it's not really any different than than any other time in their lives. That that adult crawling on the ground is just as much a risk of predation as the youngster is, and they're often fairly tame as well. So, you know, I understand, you know, people's hearts are in the right place when they're trying to do that. Yeah. But I, in my personal opinion, I would just leave, you know, you don't have to do anything with the nest. You don't have to do anything with the fledglings. They're going to be just fine. Or they're not, and there's not a whole lot you're going to be able to do about <laughs> it. So it works for the morning doves, even though it seems like a, a risky strategy to us. The proof of how successful it is just is how common the birds are. So it works for them. That makes sense. I'd like to thank Jeff for joining us again, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. You can expect the second part of this special that focuses on predators to arrive towards the end of this month. I appreciate those of you who have already left a rating or review for the podcast, and if you haven't, please leave one to help more people discover the podcast. For pictures of the morning dove and more from this episode, please check out the podcast Instagram and follow at Looking at Birds Podcast. Until next time, keep looking at birds.